Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. You can learn more about the show, The Yoga Hour, at our new website, theyogahour.com. Our topic today is living a life of oneness, and we'll be discussing the question, what does it mean practically to live a life committed to oneness? I'm so delighted to be joined today by Jeremy Ingalls, an award-winning professor of communication and ethics at Penn State University, as well as a yoga and meditation teacher and co-owner of Yoga Lab Studios in State College, Pennsylvania. Dr. Ingalls is the author of several books, including the book we're discussing today, The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita. He considers himself to be an American transcendentalist and writes that, quote, the best scholarship is poetry, the best communication, yoga, unquote. His website is jeremydavidengels.com. It's E-N-G-E-L-S, jeremydavidengels.com. Welcome, Jeremy Ingalls. I'm really delighted to have you join me today on the Yoga Hour. Oh, it's such a treat to be here. I um, am a longtime listener of the show, and uh, to me, it's an honor just to, to have this time this morning and to get to talk with you. So, and to everybody who's listening out there, good morning. Mm, wonderful. So before we dive into our dialogue about living a life of oneness, let's dive in to a yoga moment, a moment of present awareness. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, bringing our attention and awareness to our body in space. Just feeling all of the surfaces that support us. Perhaps we're sitting in a chair or walking. Just feeling the surfaces that support our body's weight. And then turning our attention to the breath. And just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale. And exhale. The next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the next exhale, the warm air flowing out. Continuing to focus on our breath, not trying to change the natural flow, just noticing. 
And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from the Yoga Hours founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien's book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Practice meeting all people and all situations with the awareness that you are meeting yourself. And that's self with a capital S. Practice meeting all people in all situations with the awareness that you are meeting yourself. Assume basic goodness and transform even the most difficult relationships. Let the truth of your being meet the truth of another. The key to right relationship with everyone is respect based on oneness. The conscious realization that there is only one reality. Our relationships provide a precious opportunity for spiritual awakening. Behold the divine in all people and in all situations. So once again, Jeremy Ingalls, welcome to the Yoga Hour. In the introduction to your book, The Ethics of Oneness, you describe a visit to a bookstore in India from, it sounds like many years ago, when you asked the owner for her favorite book about yoga. And I love that story. Can you share it with our listeners? Sure thing. Um, So this was about a decade ago, and uh, I was in Chennai in the south of India, um, studying at a yoga institute there. And I asked one of the philosophy teachers at our school for her favorite bookstore in town. And so she described this place. And uh, so I hopped in a rickshaw and sped across town and uh, got very, very lost and probably almost died a few times. Um, (laughs) But eventually found our way to the Sanskrit college and it was down the alley across the way from the Sanskrit college. And so we stopped and uh, the bookstore was on the fifth or the sixth floor of an apartment building. And so I climbed up the steps of the apartment building and there were lots of little children and they were wonderful and happy and there were chickens and uh, it was a lot. And I finally, you know, arrived at the bookstore and, and went in and, you know, it felt like Harry Potter to me, really. I mean, there were books just stacked everywhere, beautiful, beautiful volumes. And I asked the bookseller um, for her favorite book on yoga And she said, "Um, just a moment. And she went in the back. And uh, so I spent, it felt like a little while, kind of wandering around, looking at books, calculating the shipping costs in my head of how much money I was going to spend sending all of these amazing books home. And she came out and she handed me an old leather-bound volume. And it was a copy of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays from the 1850s. And she said, this is the best book on yoga for you. And this was just an amazing moment of serendipity in my life that I traveled all the way to India to study with amazing Indian yoga teachers and ended up in this bookstore having a bookseller give me a book that I had treasured since I was in high school. Um, And so that was the only book um, that I bought that day, um, of course, uh, and it's sitting on my bookcase over here. It's you know a treasured book for me, and uh, 
as best as I can tell, I think it was a book that was, there were a number of uh, Unitarian missionaries um, who traveled to India in the 1840s and 1850s, and they took copies of um, Thoreau and Emerson with them. And I think this book probably had been in India since then. Um, wow. Yeah. And then she also gave you a free book. She did, um, which was amazing. So I was turning to leave and uh, just kind of lost, you know, in the majesty of the universe in that moment. And she said, hold on a second. And um, she grabbed a book off of her desk and it was a very worn, tattered copy of the Bhagavad Gita, um, mm -hmm. a translation from the 19th century. Um, it was a version of, you know, a 1970s book. And um, it's an amazing translation of the Bhagavad Gita because the author actually uses some of Ralph Waldo Emerson's language in translating the Sanskrit into English. Um, and so again, it was this moment of serendipity of the mm -hmm. universe trying to tell me something i think so well it almost seemed to me when i read it that that was the the uh origin of this book that we're going to be talking about uh today so that's why i wanted you to share it with our listeners so what led you to write your new book the ethics of oneness and particularly at this time what 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 were your thoughts about that yeah i mean as as you know um yoga is ancient but yoga has always been changing um it's you know, a, a practice that human beings have adapted to fit the needs and demands of their times and places. And, uh, you know, I'm a historian by training. And so I'm really interested in the history of ideas and practices. And um, I've been practicing yoga for a long time and have been really interested in that history of my own practice. And so this idea for this book, The Ethics of Oneness, really did begin to take shape about 10 or 12 years ago, around the time I was spending a lot of time in India. But it took a long time to write this book because, um, you know, I, the ideas are, are, are so big. And I wanted mm. to visit as many archives as I could and talk with as many people as I could. Um, but it seems somehow really fortuitous that the book um, was finished and accepted at the moment that the pandemic um, you know, really took hold of, mm -hmm. you know, of the world and the culture. And because I think the pandemic has proven just how interconnected we are as human right. beings, whether we like that or not. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that oneness, you know, it's a timeless theme, but it's a theme to me that feels particularly pressing right now, because especially in our culture in the United States, we're so deeply divided on so many issues, um, politically divided. But at this moment, the shared challenges we face as human beings have never been greater. I mean, I think of, you know, I've been thinking of them as the three great crises of the breath. You know, as a yoga teacher, I think a lot about the breath. Um, but I've been thinking about the pandemic, which affects, you know, COVID affects the lungs and then global warming, you know, with fires and flooding and also racial and gendered injustice. Um, I can't breathe. And we can really only address these problems if we relearn how to talk and how to listen and how to collaborate and how to work together, if we learn to welcome and respect each other. And so I think that thinking about oneness at this moment, I think is 
important, but for me, it's even more pressing than that because I think that we have to think about oneness if we're going to have a future together on this planet. Mm. So I was particularly struck by a, 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 something that you wrote in the books. So I wanted to read that. You write, my research is driven by the hope that if we truly understand what causes division, then it might be possible to see beyond it towards something deeper and more real that unites us so that we might be able to talk to each other, to learn from each other and live together more peacefully in justice. That's just so beautiful. Kind of was the same thing that you that you just said in other words. Did you want to add anything to that? Oh, thanks. Um... You know, humans are really good at duality, aren't we? <laughs> We're so good at building walls and uh, creating categories and building divisions. Um, all of these divisions of in-groups and out-groups, of superior and inferior, of worthy and unworthy. And my hunch has been... You know, so this is the fourth book that I've written, and the other three were really about practices of um, division and trying to understand better what are the ways that humans divide. And my hunch was that because I understand oneness to be a practice, I think understanding the history of division can help us to be better practitioners of oneness and kind of help to reveal some of the traps maybe to avoid in our own practice. The subtitle of your book is Emerson, Whitman, and the Bhagavad Gita. For listeners who are not familiar with Ralph Waldo Emerson, can you remind us of who he was and explain why you chose to focus on him in your book? Sure. Um, so Emerson was born in 1803 and he died in 1882. And so his life kind of bookends the 19th century in some ways. You know, he was born after the American Revolution, but he lived through the rise of industrialization and he lived through the Civil War and, and the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, why he's really important is, you know, he, today I think we would consider him to be a public intellectual. You know, he was an essayist. Um, he was a very, very, very popular public speaker. Um, he would draw really big crowds of people to come and listen to him speak. Um, but I think that in a moment of change and upheaval, he really explained America to itself. I mean, this was a new generation who grew up after the Revolutionary War, grasping for meaning, grasping for a mission, grasping for ideas. And Emerson was really good at explaining Americans to themselves. And many of the ideas that he expressed have really become central to um you know, how we tend to think about ourselves as Americans. Um, so I think of, you know, the idea of self-reliance, um, the idea that nature has a kind of language that speaks to us. Um, you know, Emerson also talked a lot about the power of the mind to shape our reality. Um, and those ideas really have been central to my own life and to my own practice. Um, Though in the book, I hope to show that Emerson often doesn't mean exactly what we think he means by many of the ideas that he uses, like this idea of self-reliance, which has become, you know, it's taken on a life of its own in a lot of ways in our culture. Actually, what Emerson means by that is not at all what a lot of people who use that phrase today mean by it. Mm. 
And the other uh, person that you mentioned in the um, in the subtitle, Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita, is Whitman. So would you give us also an overview of Walt Whitman and why you chose to focus on him in your book? Sure. Um, so, you know, a lot of scholars and writers would consider Whitman alongside Emily Dickinson to be America's greatest poet. Um, and he was born in 1819 and he died in 1892. So he was a little bit younger than Emerson, though they overlapped. And in some ways, Emerson was a mentor um, to Whitman. But he wrote a famous poem called Leaves of Grass, um, which was originally published in 1855. And then Emerson, or I mean, Whitman revised that poem over and over again for the rest of his life. And so it grew from this little tiny poem into a giant volume as he continued to add and add to it. Mm -hmm. And um, so if Emerson explained America to itself, I tend to think of Whitman as someone who shows us our better angels. Um, he shows us... I think the best of ourselves, how we might live more harmoniously with others, how we can recognize oneness while still respecting diversity and difference, how we can work together to challenge the many unjust systems humans have developed to rank some people as superior and others as inferior. Mm -hmm. um, and Whitman, for me, you know, if I'm having a bad if I'm having a bad day, if I read the news and you know things seem really bleak, or if something difficult happens, you know, of course, I have my meditation practice and my yoga practice. But a big part of that actually is to pick up my volume of leaves of grass, and just open it at random, um, and start reading. And uh, that often does help me to, to feel better. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's a little bit about about Whitman. And moving to the third part of the subtitle, the Bhagavad Gita, I thought for listeners who are not familiar with it, would you give a brief overview of what it is and when it was written, acknowledging as I asked that question that we could spend the entire rest of the podcast just talking about that? <laughs> we really could, couldn't we? Yeah. yeah. I, um, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is, it's an important book to me um, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's a book that I encountered for the first time in high school. Um, actually looking at how, um, the book was important to nonviolent um, political activists. And so Thoreau and um, Gandhi and, and Martin Luther King. Um, but the Gita itself um, is part of a larger epic poem called the Mahabharata. And um, most Sanskrit scholars believe that the Mahabharata was composed by a number of different authors orally probably over the period of hundreds of years. And that at some point as that long epic poem was being composed, the Gita was also composed. Um, and we don't know where the Gita came from exactly, only that it's part of this larger poem and that it incorporates a number of arguments and perspectives of many different philosophical schools in India. And most scholars date the Gita they believe it was composed in what's now northern India, sometime between the reign of Ashoka, um, the Buddhist king, um, which is like 269 to 232 BCE. So sometime between that and then the Gupta dynasty, which is like 300 to 500 CE. So that's a big range of possible dates. Um, 
but that's a little bit about the you know the 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 context of the Gita. The Gita itself um, has become you know such a popular text. It's really one of the world's Bibles. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with just the dramatic scene of the Gita. Um, and so the Gita is a dialogue between Krishna, um, who in many Hindu traditions is a god or the gods or, or one of the gods, um, depending on how you understand things. Um, though, interestingly, in the Mahabharata, he's not always revealed as God. So sometimes people know he is, sometimes they don't. In this moment, we're supposed to believe that his friend Arjuna doesn't quite fully understand exactly who he is yet. And so Krishna is talking with Arjuna, who is the greatest warrior in the world. Um, and they're on the cusp of this terrible, terrible, terrible battle. And Arjuna says, I don't want to fight. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I can't fight against my cousins and my teachers and my friends. And Krishna really works to try to persuade him that it's a just war and he needs to fight. Um, and so it's a dramatic dialogue that takes place over 18 different chapters. Um, but in the midst of the dialogue, Krishna teaches Arjuna what he says is the secret truth, the highest truth, the truth of oneness. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously that fit with your theme of the ethics of oneness. And I did want to mention that for people who are, are familiar with the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is the meditation center that funds the Yoga Hour as a service project, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is one of the two main texts that are studied at the mm -hmm. Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including then the, the other one being uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. So obviously um, very um, familiar to some listeners who are out there, but I didn't want to leave anybody out who might not be as, as familiar with it. So in setting the scene for our later conversation about the details about living a life of oneness, I wanted to give listeners an introduction to Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita. But let's touch back on uh, Emerson again for a minute. You write that in two recent histories, Phil Goldberg's book, American Veda, and Stephanie Simon's book, The Subtle Body, these are both histories of yoga in America. They both books cite Ralph Waldo Emerson as the founder of American yoga. So can you comment on that? Why can Emerson be viewed as the founder? I mean, I think a lot of people might be surprised about that. They would think more about one of the early gurus, early teachers that came, perhaps uh, Vivekananda, who came in, I think it was 1894, or, or Yogananda, who came in 1920, as more of the founders of American yoga. But no, both of those point earlier to, to Emerson himself. So strange right <laughs> it's um, actually cool <laughs> it is yeah it's really interesting and and so um the british are colonizing parts of india in the 1700s and so part of that project um is that some texts of indian religion and philosophy are beginning to be translated into European languages, English and Latin. Interestingly enough, the second translation of the Gita is actually into Latin. Um, uh, but also what's coming out of the Indian subcontinent are all of these reports that are written by 
honestly quite bigoted Christian missionaries who were speaking very, very, very harshly about the people of India, the religions of India, the philosophy of India. And Emerson's really important um, for yoga for two reasons. Um, the first is that he stands at the beginning of a long tradition of interest in oneness. Um, so in a sense that there's a divinity to the world, that life is about more than material acquisition. Um, but most importantly, for our purposes, he roots his interest in oneness in Indian philosophy and many of the texts and philosophies that have come like the Bhagavad Gita to be um, important to contemporary global yoga. Um, and so Emerson's not the founder of yoga in the sense of like developing asanas or pranayama practice or anything like that, right? I mean, that's gonna come much, much later. But in terms of an interest in Indian philosophy and a warm welcoming embrace of Indian philosophy that sets the stage for what's to come later, Emerson is really important. Um, and I think it's interesting and worth noting, too, that um, after Emerson dies, he was afforded great respect by many Indian writers and teachers. Um, there's a really popular author, Protap um, Mazumdar. He writes that Emerson was a geographical mistake. He said he should have been born in India, which I thought was <laughs> fascinating. So he talks about him as the child of the Himalaya or the Ganges. And um, Vivekananda references Emerson quite frequently in his books on yoga. And Yogananda, in the autobiography of a yogi, cites Emerson 15 times. And so there's this awareness on the part of the Indian gurus and teachers who come to America a little bit later that there's fertile ground in part because of the work that people like Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman did. Indeed. And I, I enjoyed the way that you cast that explanation and just the history of British rule of India and how so many authors were so dismissive of yes. anything that came from India. It had to be savage and it couldn't be anything mm -hmm. refined or worth paying attention to. And so in that respect, it, uh, I can see the importance of someone like uh, someone like Emerson. And with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with my guest, Jeremy Ingalls. Jeremy David Ingalls, PhD, is an award-winning professor of communication and ethics at Penn State University, as well as a yoga and meditation teacher and co-owner of Yoga Lab Studios in State College, Pennsylvania. He's the author of several books, including the book we're discussing today, The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita. You can find out more about Jeremy and his books at his website, jeremydavidengels.com. We'll be posting links to his website and his book on our website, theyogahour.com. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host of the show. We'll be back from the break to discuss more about living a life of oneness. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity. The newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.
practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour Insights and Practices for Spiritually Conscious Living. Welcome back to the show. This is Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and I'm here today with Jeremy Engels, author of the book we're talking about today, The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson, Whitman, and the Bhagavad Gita. So, Jeremy, the way that I found out about your book was that you emailed me with a very intriguing description. You you asked, or you told me, I ask a question that I believe would be of great interest to your podcast listeners. What does it mean practically to live a life committed to oneness? And obviously, from the first half hour of the show, people understand that that's why you're calling on these, um, these um, three sources of the Bhagavad Gita, Emerson and Whitman, in order to look at how they answered that question. So um, I, I did also want to just br- briefly mention, I enjoyed your description of William James, another philosopher of the late 19th century, as believing that whether one believes in oneness or not is the central question and determines more about the rest of, of anyone's opinions than any other opinion that they might have. Um, and to me, I thought that was such an interesting and mm-hmm. um, it, it had a resonance of truth to me that that we can have these profound insights during our meditation practice. We can have our own experiences of oneness, yet those insights don't have power until we can really live a life from that new viewpoint. And then that becomes the central question of, of oneness. How do we live a life of oneness? So in your view, what's one way, of, as we look first at the Gita, what's one way that the Gita encourages us to live a life committed to oneness? And I would say we could talk about any of these three, we could talk about the Gita, we could talk about Emerson, we talk about Whitman, and how they lived a life of oneness for the entire rest of the show. But I wanted to just give a little, a little taste to listeners and hopefully intrigue them perhaps into looking further into your book. So what is one way that the Gita encourages us to live a life committed to oneness? Yeah, I think um, just to echo what you um, what you just said, I think that to me, um, you know, it, it's it's easy to um, put a bumper sticker on your car or do something else like that um, related to oneness. But the real question becomes, how do we, just as you said, take these beautiful moments of insight that we have in our meditation practice, our yoga practice, into the interconnectedness of all beings, all life. And then what do we build out of that? What kind of world do we build on that foundation? And um, so the Gita, um, there's a lot of really great translations of the Gita out here. Um, You know, there's a, I I did some of my own translation work for the book, um, but a translation that came out a couple years ago called God's Song is one that I really like a lot. Um, Amit Majudmar um, is the uh, Majudar is the author. Um, and the passage in the Gita that always resonated with me um, the most are uh, chapter six, verses 29 through 32. Um, and this is where Krishna is telling Arjuna about oneness. Um, and he says the the self, here's your big self from earlier, um, in every creature, every creature in the self, The Atman yoked in yoga sees identity at all times. 
whoever sees the self everywhere and sees in the self the all, I am not lost to him. He's not lost to me. A yogi who abides in oneness worships me abiding in all things. However else his way of life may be, he lives in me. The yogi who sees all identities, their happiness, their suffering is metaphorically his own, is thought to be the highest. Um, mm. I love, I, I mean, this is a big part of my own meditation practice or these verses. Um, how can we see the divine in all beings? And what does that mean? Um, I think is the question that the Gita really encourages us to ask is um, what would it mean really to approach another being, a being who's happy or a being who's suffering, maybe a being who we consider to be an adversary um, or a friend? What does it mean to really approach other people as divine? Um, I think that that's such an important question um, for our divided political world, but I think it's really a central question for us as yogis as well. Mm -hmm. Mm, that's lovely. Thank you for the reminder of those verses. So let's move on to Emerson. Would you give an example of how Emerson answered this question of what does it mean to live a life committed to oneness? An example of how Emerson makes oneness matter. I love that from the book. How do you make oneness matter? For Emerson, it really has to do with how we talk to other people. Um, you know, I'm a professor of communication, and uh, I became interested in communication because communication is one of the ways that we can promote peace. Um, it's also one of the ways that we can promote war. Um, but for Emerson, um, he talks about speaking to the soul. Um, so what does it mean when you're talking to another person to address the divine in them, to address their their capacity for you know, harmony, their capacity for transcendence, their capacity for goodness. Um, and how do we welcome all beings as worthy of respect in how we communicate with them? I think is really the the question that Emerson raises in his book, and it's a big question, right? I mean, it's a question that we could uh, talk about for <laughs> the next few hours, um, but it's a question actually that the, the the new book that I'm working on really is all about this question mm. of, of communication uh, in the context of oneness. Well, I think there was something about that in the introduction that I yeah. that I that we took, which is uh, communication as yoga. So. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to say more about that? Just this idea of communication as yoga, which you dive into quite a bit, I think, in the book. Yeah. So if yoga means, I mean, yoga, we know from Sanskrit can mean over 80 different things, right? I mean, yoga can mean so many different things in different times or places, but it's come over time um, in contemporary global yoga, especially to mean something like union, Um or, or yoking. And, um, and so I think of, we have our Ashtanga, our eight limbs of yoga practice coming out of Patanjali. We have many different, um, yogic practices. Um, but to me, communication should be one of the central things that we're studying and practicing as yogis. Um, and so thinking about how do we find these moments of connection of unity and identification, 
without potentially erasing our own differences um, and our own diversity, which is where Whitman's going to come into the story in a minute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So before we move on from Emerson, though, one of the things I appreciated was your balanced view of of Emerson and Whitman in the book, and that you point out that all philosophies are maps, and the map is not no no map is perfect. No map is a perfect mirror of reality uh, of reality. And so you also provide some criticism of of Emerson's philosophy and Whitman's philosophy. So what's just one criticism that you would give of Emerson's philosophy? Yeah, um, so in eighteen forty two um, tragedy struck. Emerson's family. I can't even imagine. Um, but his five-year-old son, Waldo, um, his, his firstborn child um, got really sick and ended up dying of scar scarlet fever. And like I said, I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose a child. Um, in that moment, I mean, Emerson was rocked to the core, um, you know, and um, it was between the publication of the first volume of his essays, which is the volume that I um, was fortunate enough to be, you know, handed in India, and the second volume of his essays, which comes out a couple years after this. And scholars have noticed that there's a kind of a turn in Emerson's thought. It's almost a sort of darkening in his thought. He's pretty upbeat in the first volume of essays. He's not as upbeat after his son dies. I mean, and I think that's understandable. Um, but one of the things that happens with Emerson's philosophy from this point forward to the moment that he dies is that he takes oneness um, in one direction that we can take it. And that direction is the direction of maya or illusion. So maya is a Sanskrit word. It's an important word in um, a number of yoga philosophies, but it means like an illusion. And Emerson came to believe that everything truly is one, which means that there really is no difference between any of us, that there really is no life, that there really is no death, that there really is no change, that there just is this eternal reality of oneness that always is. And then there are all these illusions that are kind of playing on the surface of that. And that belief, I think, gave him tremendous comfort after his son died, because, you know, it wasn't that his son really died, because his son wasn't really ever alive, because no one was really alive, and no one is really dead, and everything is eternal, and nothing is changing. Um, I think that, and I, I'm critical of that view of oneness in the book, not because it doesn't give people tremendous comfort, and I think anyone, you know, you know that that's great. Um, but I think the moment that we stop recognizing that this embodied being is real, um, mm -hmm. that the ups and downs of this life are real, um, I think we set ourselves up for tremendous suffering um, mm -hmm. and the potential for really deep political conflict and violence. Um, mm -hmm. Because if nothing's really real, and if everyone is eternal and no one really lives or no one really dies, that's a really good argument for war. Mm. Mm. Really interesting yeah. viewpoint. So let's turn now to Whitman and 
would you give an example of how Whitman answered this question of what does it mean to live a life committed to oneness, of how Whitman made oneness matter? Sure. Um, so if the Gita, um, if in Krishna teaches Arjuna to see the divine in all things, and then Emerson really um, takes that into the realm of communication. So let's address the divine in all things. Whitman picks that theme up as well. So so much of his poetry is about celebrating the divine, celebrating the all, um, celebrating these moments of connection, um, looking for you know, the face of God, he says, in every face that he sees, um, which is such a powerful practice. But the thing that Whitman does that I think is so important is that he sings the body electric, which is the name of one of his really famous poems. I love that poem. Um, for Whitman, the body is real. Um, it's not an illusion. It's not Maya. Um, and diversity and difference are also real. And so somehow we are all one, but we're also different too. Um, and so Whitman has this practice of seeing oneness and diversity and diversity and oneness um, mm. that I think sets us on a really strong foundation for justice and for democracy. And so I kind of think of Whitman's oneness as being so big and expansive. And he would use the word orbic, like uh, like the orb of the earth, right? It's so mm -hmm. big that it has space to recognize diversity and difference as well. Mm. And in the same way that you pointed out a criticism of, of uh, Emerson's philosophy. What is one criticism that you would give of, of Whitman's orbic philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that it's harder for me. I mean, just being completely honest, it's harder for me to find criticisms of Whitman because he himself gives me so much comfort. Um, but I do talk about a couple of things in this orbic you know, monumental philosophy of oneness that give me pause. And I think that one of them is there's a really deep theme of American exceptionalism that runs through Whitman's poetry. Um, he loves America. And, and I do too. I don't have a problem with that. I think that, you know, this country where I was born and in which I live, we have so much to offer. Um, and there's deep, 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 reservoirs of strength and resolve that we draw on, especially in moments of tragedy, right? Um, but I think that any kind of exceptional logic that says that like this place is the best or this country is the best also has a way of dividing. Um, and I think it's really important today, especially to recognize that we as Americans are part of the world. We're part of, um, you know, a globe, we're part of, you know, the human, of human beings. Um, and that we can really only solve, or maybe we can't even solve, we can really only address so many of the problems that we're facing today, if we reach out our hands across borders, to work together with people from all over the globe. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen that firsthand in collaborations that I've developed in India and, you know, in, in Europe and in, in South America. And um, I see it in, you know, we're when we, whenever we do a yoga teacher training and we have people from around the world, um, 
it's so deeply enriched um, by these multicultural conversations that I think oneness as a framework can help to facilitate and set up. Um, yeah. Hmm. I I think that's a um, it's a it's a great thing to point to how there's um, there's definitely something to be gained. And, and I actually loved how earlier you were talking about the three great crises of the breath. Yeah, that, that was just really a wonderful thing. And that we can't solve these crises within national borders, that they have to be international, they have to be global. And those three great crises were the COVID, obviously, the COVID yeah. epidemic doesn't have any boundaries as we as we, as we watched it spread all over the world yeah. and, and continue to watch now the, the various variants continue to spread mm -hmm. around the world. And then, of course, the climate climate change. No one country can address climate change if we're not all in it together. It's not going to work. And then racial justice. I thought so. It's just was a great way of of talking about those three crises as crises of the breath. So, yeah, um, I think that um, <clears throat> I was just going to say that to me, you know, as a yoga teacher and practitioner, that thinking about the breath, which is is a theme in the Bhagavad Gita, it's a theme in um, so many different mystical traditions um, because the breath is often associated with inspiration, right? We talk about inspiring, um, being inspired. Um, I, I love how closely our language of breathing is tied to our language of inspiration. Um, yes. But to me, the breath is really this place, this uh, place where the inside and the outside meet. Um, mm -hmm. And so training ourselves to see ourselves as part of the interconnected whole in our breathing, I think opens up new possibilities for thinking about and practicing yoga in terms of justice. So yeah, I'm thinking a lot about that because this is going to be really central to this new new book that I'm working on. Mm. So yeah. So we've been talking about specific practices that Emerson and Whitman were that, that they wrote about in terms of really bringing oneness to life, bringing it into their into their world. So how do you see those practices helping us to heal the current climate of separation in the country and in the world? Yeah, I think that um, I think that inspiration is really important. Um, Emerson, he wrote this wonderful essay called The Poet. And um, he said that a truly great poet, and he was almost like putting this call out to the universe saying, please universe provide this poet to us because we need this poet. But he said a truly great poet uses language to repair the decay of things. And I really like that phrase a lot. And um, Whitman believed that he was the great poet that um, you know that Whitman or that Emerson was talking about, and I think it's sometimes Emerson thought Whitman was that poet too. Um, I'm hopeful that the book that I've written can inspire us to have more conversations like this, to have more conversations about oneness, about what it is we share, um, about how we recognize what we share while still preserving our sense of diversity and difference. Um, I'm hopeful that we can have conversations about how to welcome and conversations that do welcome 
more voices into the ensemble, um, which is a metaphor that Whitman uses so much. Um, one of the things, I, it's honestly one of my favorite lines in the book. Um, it was kind of a toss-off line, but I, I, I think about it a lot of how, you know, the, the founders of the United States wrote a declaration of independence. Um, but I think what we really need is a declaration of interdependence, mm. a declaration that states our rights and responsibilities and talks about our virtues and practices for an interdependent, interconnected world of oneness. Um, and I can't write that myself. Like no one individual could write that declaration, of course, because it's something we need to write together. But I feel more and more that we we really do need to write that declaration. And so um, if anyone out there has any ideas about what that might look like, <laughs> it'd be so nice to, to hear. Mm. And I think people can contact you through your website, <clears throat> jeremydavidingles.com, and certainly can contact us through theyogahour.com. The um, so is there a one practice that you would encourage people? Um, actually, I'm just looking at the time. So maybe I should go on to the, to the next thing, which is in closing, what words of encouragement mm. or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? It's always the last question that we ask because we like mm. to end the show on a, on a high note of encouragement or inspiration. Yeah. I've come to think that oneness is a practice, uh, just like yoga. And just like yoga, oneness can be practiced in many ways. And to me, yoga is a practice of oneness, especially in how we talk and how we listen to each other. And so my hope is that our practices of oneness can inspire us to talk and learn from each other and lead us towards a respect and honoring for all living beings in this magnificent diversity. And I hope that our practice can inspire us to work for justice for all on this beautiful planet we call home. And I take so much comfort in seeing how people are practicing oneness in ways that are so good for the planet and for the world and for us. So. Did you have an example of that <clears throat> that you were thinking mm. of? I think of, um, you know, I think of environmentalist movements um, that are happening right now really to me are, you know, one of the great sources of hope um, that I have, um, you know, practicing oneness and studying oneness um, has led me to become an environmentalist in, in many ways. Um, it's led me to be really curious to get to know my own backyard, the trees and the birds, to learn where my water comes from, where my plastic goes, how the climate's changing and what I can do. Um, and I hope that oneness as a yogic practice can lead more of us into that space, um, that space of collaboration and change. That's mm. well, a really beautiful vision of how it could be and one that we can hopefully take off of our off of our cushions off of our mats and into the world and bring it into reality i would love to see that and i know sounds like you would too I would. 
And with that, we've come to the end of the show. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and we've been discussing Living a Life of Oneness with Dr. Jeremy Ingalls, the author of the book we've been discussing today, The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson, Whitman, and the Bhagavad Gita. You can find out more about Dr. Engels and his work at his website, jeremydavidengels.com. And Engels, again, is E-N-G-E-L-S. We will be posting his information on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. Thank you for having me. For listeners, join me next time on the Yoga Hour when Dr. David Richo and I will be discussing how we can look at the roots of what triggers us, how we can stop reacting to those triggers and start healing. We also encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Pacific time, daily afternoon meditation from 4 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday satsangs from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific each week. Learn more about CSE online programs at csecenter.org and specifically for programs with Yogacharya O'Brien, her website, ellengraceobrien.com. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition that welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization. Remember to... Check out our website, theyogahour.com, to learn more about the show and to ask, access our library of podcasts. And perhaps, if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director of the show, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers, Ann Hayes and Mickey Coronado, and as always, Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all whom you meet today, throughout the week, and until next time. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 